You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 89, General Washington Moves to New York. So at the end of March 1776, George Washington was still enjoying the adulation of expelling the last large British force in the 13 colonies. General Howe had sailed his army from Boston to Halifax to await his brother Admiral Howe and his other reinforcements. Now Washington knew that a strike was coming, but he still didn't know for sure exactly where or when. Washington was on defense now. He had to figure out where he needed his defenses. In his letters to Congress in April and May, Washington guessed that Howe might attack Quebec, New York, or possibly both. He also had to worry about Clinton's force down in the Carolinas. With less than 10,000 Continentals to defend New York and only about 2,000 to defend Quebec, he really did not have enough troops to defend either properly. His hope was to force Howe to attack well-entrenched positions where, like Bunker Hill, the regulars would take far more casualties than the Continentals. His only other hope was for large numbers of local militia to turn out in each area to augment his army. In Canada, this had proven impossible. Similarly, in New York, far fewer locals were willing to turn out and fight for the cause. Much larger populations were either loyalist or simply unwilling to risk their necks for the cause. Before battle came, Washington's ranks would swell to around 20,000. However, these added militia proved very disappointing in battle and convinced Washington of the need for a larger, well-trained Continental Army if he ever hoped to win the war. Now, despite guessing about multiple locations, Washington did seem convinced that Howe would probably be headed to New York, though he continued to write letters indicating that he could not be sure. But as early as January 1776, Washington had sent his top general, Charles Lee, to New York. Lee, as you may recall, is third in command of the army and had been getting bored at the Siege of Boston. He wanted an independent command and was not shy about writing to Congress about that. Lee had a hard time treating Washington as a superior. Remember, Lee had known Washington since the two men fought together under General Braddock way back in 1754. At that time, Lee was a lieutenant in the regular army and had command authority over Washington, who was in the Virginia militia. In the intervening decades, Lee had racked up far more experience fighting in Europe for England as well as other countries, while Washington sat around Virginia as a farmer and a politician. Lee was generally respectful toward Washington as his commander, but anyone who talked to Lee for more than five minutes 
had to realize that he considered himself superior to Washington as an officer and military strategist. He seemed to be biding his time until everyone else realized the same thing and replaced Washington with Lee as commander of the army. Washington seemed to have an amazing knack for letting his subordinates shine, even when it might mean his own replacement. When Congress decided to give Lee an independent command, Washington backed the plan and even encouraged it. Washington wanted Lee in New York because he thought Lee had great experience in setting up defenses that they knew they would need in New York City. So Congress tasked Lee with setting up defenses in New York. Before he went to New York, Lee spent a few weeks in Connecticut recruiting about 1,200 soldiers to take with him. Now, part of his mission was to begin building defenses in anticipation of an assault by sea. But his first job was to make sure Tories in and around New York did not create their own threat. Although radicals like Isaac Sears still controlled New York City for the Patriots, many Tories were waiting quietly for things to change. There was still a British fleet in the harbor, along with Governor Tryon, though he did not dare step foot on land. New Yorkers feared that Lee's presence with his New England regiments would convince the British fleet to fire on the city, possibly burning it to the ground. When word reached the Continentals that General Clinton had left Boston for New York, they decided Lee needed to get down there and make sure that General Clinton was not going to try to take the city for the British. Lee, quite frankly, needed to discover General Clinton's intentions. Now, Lee figured there was nothing like the direct approach. So, he wrote Clinton a letter and had it delivered to Clinton's ship in New York Harbor. Ali and Clinton had been old friends in the regular army, where they served together for years. The fact that Lee was, at least in the eyes of the British, now a traitor, and one of the commanding generals in an army that Clinton was tasked to destroy, did not seem to bother either of them. Clinton assured Lee that he was only there to confer with the royal governor, that he only had a few companies with him, and that he had no intention of landing. He was headed down to the Carolinas to meet up with General Cornwallis and the regiments that Cornwallis was bringing over to retake the Carolinas. Now, all of this was true, but really, Clinton? Just write a letter outlining your entire plan and send it to the enemy? Even General Lee seemed skeptical when he forwarded the information to Washington. What kind of general would do that? But that's exactly what Clinton did. Lee immediately set about testing the resolve of the British Navy. He brought his 1,200 Connecticut soldiers into the city, along with another 1,000 or so from New Jersey. They dismantled the artillery battery at the harbor right under the nose of the Navy. The British had threatened to level the city if the Patriots took those guns. But Lee took them, and they did nothing. Lee also cut off Governor Tryon's ability to send and receive letters from his ship in the harbor. While Lee was an aggressive military figure, he definitely lacked Washington's political skills. Lee never asked for anything. He ordered it. Like other British officers we've seen in the past, Lee considered civilian government officials as his subordinates. They were there to follow his orders. The New York Provincial Congress was in no mood to take orders from this outsider. Lee and the Congress started an intense feud that got really personal 
really fast. It probably could have become a problem had not Congress decided to transfer Lee out of the city. It was in February that Congress tapped Lee to take command of the Northern Army in Canada, something I discussed a few weeks back. But then they changed their minds again and left him in New York City. A few weeks after that, Congress changed his mind and gave Lee a new command, the Southern Department. Lee would be responsible for the defense of Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. Since Lee knew Clinton was headed to that region with a fairly sizable army, he was happy to take the independent command that would soon give him a chance to show off his military prowess. By the end of March, Lee was on his way south, taking up a new headquarters in Williamsburg, Virginia. This was about the same time that Washington was chasing Howe's army out of Boston, meaning that Washington would be free to take over the defense of New York himself. The British had evacuated Boston in mid-March, so in late March and early April, once Washington was sure Howe was really leaving Massachusetts for Halifax, he began shipping more and more of his army to New York. As soon as General Lee left, General William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling, took command of American forces in New York. Sterling was born and raised in New York, but settled in New Jersey as an adult. He had a claim to a Scottish noble title, hence the title Lord Sterling. The British House of Lords, however, had refused to recognize this claim. When the revolution began, Sterling, who had no military experience, became a militia colonel when he used his personal wealth to outfit a regiment of New Jersey militia. In January 1776, he made a name for himself when he and his men boarded several small fishing vessels, sailed out to a British supply vessel near New York Harbor, and captured it. Seen as a rising star, on March 1st, Congress promoted Lord Sterling, along with five other officers, as new brigadier generals in the Continental Army. A few days later, upon Lee's departure from the city, he found himself in command of New York City. Sterling's command was short-lived, though. On March 21st, Sterling had to turn over command to General William Thompson, who was appointed general on the same day as Sterling, but designated as more senior to him. The Irish-born Thompson was at least a veteran of the French and Indian War, who had lived in Pennsylvania. Colonel Thompson had commanded a Pennsylvania rifle company at the Siege of Boston, where he apparently impressed Congress enough to make him a general. A week later, General William Heath arrived from Boston to take command in New York from Thompson. Heath had been one of the original brigadier generals, which Congress appointed back in June of 1775. He had been before that a militia officer in Massachusetts and had been a general in the Massachusetts Provincial Army. Heath had seen some action at the very end of the British retreat from Concord and had distinguished himself during the Siege of Boston. But Heath's command lasted only a week before Major General Israel Putnam arrived in New York. I've already discussed Putnam's considerable activities during the Siege of Boston and Bunker Hill, but even General Putnam only lasted in command for just over a week until General Washington himself arrived to assume command on April 13th. I went through all those quick changes in command to give you some idea of the chaos as the Continental Army slowly migrated to New York. 
Also, all of those generals I just mentioned are going to play important roles in the coming weeks and months. As we think of the sprawling metropolis of New York today, it's hard to imagine the area in 1776. The entire region, not just the city, had a population of around 25,000, smaller than Philadelphia. New York City was only at the very lower tip of Manhattan Island, then usually called York Island. If you're familiar with the city, most of what is north of what we today know as Canal Street was farmland and unpopulated forest. Across the East River, what we today call Brooklyn, was mostly a few large country estates. The actual village of Brooklyn was a few miles inland and consisted of less than a dozen houses and an old Dutch church. There were no bridges, only ferries, to cross the Hudson or East Rivers, and the Hudson was often called the North River at this time. By the time Washington arrived in the city, much of the population had already left. Tories had no interest in ending up refugees, having to abandon all their property and run for their lives. So most had packed up and left town before it became a problem. Many others simply did not want to be in a war zone. Before long, the civilian population would drop to around 4,000. The British found New York a more desirable headquarters, not only because it had a larger Tory population in the surrounding area, but because it would be impossible for anyone to hold the city without controlling the waterways around it. New York Harbor could serve as shelter to dozens of large naval vessels. The Hudson and East Rivers were large enough to accommodate the largest ships of the line well upriver. Without any real navy, Washington realized he needed to do something to prevent the British Navy from surrounding the island and landing wherever they wished. Washington followed the basic plans that General Lee had initiated months earlier. But Lee had already told Washington that they had no realistic chance of holding New York. Because the British controlled the seas, they could easily land wherever they wanted and overwhelm any resistance. The best the Patriots could hope for was to force the British to attack entrenched positions and pay a terrible price to take the land, like they did at Bunker Hill. But there were no guarantees that General Howe would fall for that a second time. Before Lee arrived in New York, the city had only Fort George at the very southern tip of the island, today the area known as Battery Park. Thinking that the British might attempt a direct assault, Lee destroyed some of the defensive walls there and built defensive embankments with cannon a little further inland. The idea was that if the British landed under the cover of their navy cannons, they would soon enter a killing zone when they tried to move off the shore and into the town. Ali and his successors built a series of defensive embankments throughout the city. They also established Fort Washington and Fort Constitution, which was later named Fort Lee, on the Hudson River north of town. Fort Washington sat on the New York side and Fort Constitution on the New Jersey side. Again, here the idea was that any enemy ship trying to move up the Hudson would have to pass through an artillery barrage from both sides of the river. Lee also established Fort Putnam on the east side of the East River to deter any enemy ships from trying to move up the East River. The British might try a direct assault on Manhattan, but the other likely line of attack would be to land on Long Island, 
move overland into Brooklyn, then attempt to assault across the East River, supported by the Navy. To prevent such an attack, the Continentals established a line of defense at the Gowanus Heights, a hilly region in the middle of the Brooklyn-Long Island area that provided the best natural line of defense. Continentals would deploy much of their army along this line, especially guarding the passes through the heights to block any British advance in that direction. After Lee's departure, General Washington left General Putnam with the primary responsibility for setting up defenses in the city. General Greene oversaw the building of defenses on Long Island. Now, even though Washington was leading an army preparing to defend against the largest military invasion any of them had ever seen, he decided to take a few weeks to visit Congress in Philadelphia. So on May 21st, George and his wife Martha set off for Philadelphia. Washington was so concerned that something might happen to New York while he was away that he arranged for horses to be standing by at regular intervals between Philadelphia and New York. If something happened, he could ride back at a gallop, changing for fresh horses every few miles. When the Washingtons arrived in Philadelphia, they found a place to stay on Chestnut Street, only a block away from the State House, what would later be known as Independence Hall. Now, to make room for the general and his wife, the landlord had to kick out their current boarder. So, Thomas Jefferson had to pack his bags and find some other place to stay. While in Philadelphia, Washington sat for a portrait with Charles Wilson Peel. This was not the first time nor the last time that Washington would sit for Peel, who painted dozens of Washington portraits. Martha Washington had a less pleasant time in the city. She got an inoculation for smallpox, which at the time gave the recipient a limited version of the disease for several weeks or even months. Since she was spending time with the army, though, the risk of getting full-blown smallpox was too high to ignore. Washington's main purpose, of course, in coming to Philadelphia was to confer with Congress. Sadly, we don't have a good record of what they discussed exactly, as Washington did not appear before the full Congress, which recorded its proceedings in the journal. But much of the discussion was over strategy, and specifically whether the army should attempt to hold New York against a British attack. And the answer was yes. Congress was heavily involved at the time in debating independence, so that was almost certainly a topic of conversation as well. But I'm going to get into the details of that whole debate in a future episode. Of greater relevance to Washington was the creation of a Congressional Board of War to oversee war strategy. The board consisted of 14 members, one from each colony, and Virginia for some reason got two. The board selected John Adams as its chairman, making him effectively the first Secretary of War. Feeling out of his depth, Adams immediately wrote to a friend in Massachusetts to ask him to search Harvard Library for any books on military strategy. Apparently, a career as a country lawyer did not prepare Adams to run an army. Of course, Washington also wanted to buy some books on military strategy after he received his appointment as commander of the army. None of these guys were experienced professionals in the military. By some unverifiable accounts, Washington also may have met with Betsy Ross during this visit to discuss the design of a new American flag. According to Ross family lore, 
Washington, along with Robert Morris and George Ross, met with Betsy. Morris and Ross were both Pennsylvania delegates. Morris was a wealthy Philadelphia merchant, and George Ross was Betsy's uncle. Now, the story itself may be apocryphal, as the only evidence is a claim by Betsy's grandson decades after her death. He claimed it was part of the family's oral history. But it seems to me if it happened at all, it probably happened about a year later in 1777. But it would be in keeping with Washington's character to take a personal interest in the flag's design, given how much personal focus he had put into the design of uniforms and other details. In any event, Washington wrapped up his conferences with the delegates and returned to New York, leaving Philadelphia on June 5th and arriving back in New York the following day. The Army had been rife with rumors that Washington had gone to Congress to resign his commission. Therefore, his officers and men met his return with a specially strong celebration. As it turned out, the British did not do much of anything during Washington's absence. It would be months before Howe's army would get its act together and begin the invasion. So Washington would have many more months to prepare his defenses. So we'll leave Washington and his army in New York for the summer preparing their defenses. And next week, we're going to head back up north to Canada again for the Battle of the Cedars. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, and welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Now, before I get to that, I want to mention that I've added another tier to my Patreon page. I am, of course, grateful for everyone who has pledged support at any level, uh, especially Dave Salvatore at the Privy Council level. In addition to his support, Dave, who is a digital marketing guru, has offered to assist me with some of my marketing shortcomings. I really appreciate that. So anyway, the new tier is the Robert Morris level. If you are up to speed on your founding fathers, you may already know that Robert Morris, a member of the Pennsylvania delegation to the Continental Congress, was also known as the financier of the revolution. He devoted his skill as a merchant and also much of his personal fortune to the cause and helped make the revolution a success. He even lent his house to George Washington when Washington came to Philadelphia to serve as President of the United States. So, the Robert Morris Circle tier of my Patreon page is $50 a month. For that, you get all the benefits of all the other levels, 
And in addition to that, I will talk about whatever issue is important to you for 30 seconds in my podcast. This would be ideal for somebody who has their own podcast or, or maybe is getting a book published or who has a blog or a website or anything else that may be of interest to my audience. This is a great way for you to get the word out about whatever project you're working on. I'm limiting this circle to just four people because I don't want to annoy all the listeners with a laundry list of shoutouts. Once each month, one person will be guaranteed that I will talk about only your project. Okay, so this week we saw the Continental Army move from Boston to New York, where they prepared to defend against a British invasion. As we will discover in future episodes, they have plenty of time to prepare for an invasion because General Howe was certainly going to take his time. But even with all the time in the world, the Continentals lacked experienced officers with engineering skill. They also lacked experienced enlisted men who could implement any plan. Even with experienced officers and soldiers, the geography around New York almost guaranteed a victory to the British. Their naval force could land soldiers just about anywhere, and there was no way the Continentals could man proper defenses everywhere that the British could land. Despite these odds, Congress directed General Washington to defend New York as best he could, and this is what he and his officers set about to do. I mean, maybe the British could be unimaginative and conservative as they had been in Boston. In any event, the Continentals were not going to cede the area without a fight. Now, I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone, but the British will, of course, take and occupy New York, and they will hold it for most of the war. The next year will involve fighting in and around New York City to establish this control, and of course will be the topic of many future episodes. But despite how central it becomes to the revolution, New York mostly gets ignored by the very limited overview of the war that most students get. At best, they learn about Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, Independence, Valley Forge, and then Yorktown. Teachers might throw in a mention of Saratoga or maybe a southern battle or two, but New York City really gets short shrift. I think that's one reason why last week's book recommendation, 1776 by David McCullough, was so popular. Many people had never even heard that part of the story before. As much as I enjoyed McCullough's book, though, it did not focus exclusively on New York. It understandably devoted space to other important issues of that fateful year. It also did not discuss the importance of New York over many years before and after 1776. Fortunately, there are other books that focus on New York itself. And one that I most enjoy is called The Battle for New York by Barnett Schechter. It devotes all of its nearly 400 pages to the fighting in and around New York over the course of the war. I think this was Schechter's first book, published in 2002. He has written several other books since then, and he also works as a historical consultant. I found the book to be thorough, accurate, and with an engaging style. It does a great job of covering the New York area during the Revolution. If you want to read more on that topic, I really suggest giving this book a read. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all.
This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.